This week our family watched uh, our favorite Christmas movie, Not Home Alone. So together we watched the movie Elf. Uh, my favorite scene in Elf is when uh, Buddy the Elf, who grew up, of course, at the, the North Pole with Santa and his elves, uh, spots who he thinks is Santa Claus in a uh, department store in New York City. But of course, it's really just a man dressed up as Santa who's doing the normal bit with little kids who come and sit on his knee and the whole deal. And if you if you see if you see now if you remember that that scene where where Buddy begins to interrogate department store Santa and accuse him of being a fraud, remember what he said to Santa? He said, "You sit on a throne of lies, right?" He said, "You you smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa." And of course, Santa gets so angry at Buddy that he tackles him, and a and a melee ensues, and kids screaming and all the rest. It's great. Well, friends, as we've studied Matthew's gospel, we've had the privilege of spending lots of time with Jesus, haven't we? We know who he is. We know what he looks like. We know what he smells like, to use the elf analogy. We can tell the difference between Jesus and imposters. And and normally, when we learn of Jesus in the, in the Gospels, when we learn of who he is and what he came to do, we learn those things through his mighty works and through his authoritative teaching, his works and his word. And, but occasionally, occasionally in the Gospels, Jesus will just tell us explicitly, this is who I am. And when he does that, friends, our ears are to, ought to perk up, shouldn't they? We, we ought to listen carefully to Jesus because what he says is not only true, it's eternally important. And friends, such is the case in our passage today in Matthew 11. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 11. It's on page 816 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you didn't bring a Bible, please feel free to use that one. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home and make it your Bible. Last week... In the first 19 verses of Matthew 11, we saw more of the identity of Jesus as he responded to the the doubts of John the Baptist about about who Jesus was, even as John languished in Herod's prison. Jesus assured John that even, even though his deeds did not include judgment over God's enemies, his miraculous works that John had heard about did confirm that Jesus was ushering in God's salvation, just like Isaiah the prophet had predicted would happen. And yet, despite such a display of God's power, most of Jesus and John's contemporaries rejected their message that God's kingdom had arrived. In verses 16 to 19 that we looked at last week, Jesus described the obstinance of his generation. Instead of submitting to God's reign over their lives, people manufactured excuses, reasons that they came up with to reject both John and Jesus' kingdom message. And that brings us to our text this morning, verses 20 to 30 of Matthew 11, in which Jesus begins to speak forcefully and exactly about who he is and even how he responds to sinners like us. Let's read together verses 20 to 30 of Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago 
and sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of this portion of Matthew's gospel is this. The difference between whether you are justly condemned by God or graciously accepted by Him is your relationship to Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus, all of you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. It's a bit of a longer main idea than normal, but I think it summarizes these two sections and fuses them together. The difference between whether you are rightly, justly condemned, judged by God, or whether you are graciously accepted by him in love is your your relationship to Jesus Christ. So by all means, come to Jesus, all of you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Two points to the sermon today, reflecting, I think, these two groups of people that Jesus talks about in these verses. Number one, the condemned. See the, in verse 20 to 24, that is, those who reject Jesus in their hardness of heart and are therefore under God's judgment. And number two, the accepted. We see those, in, those people in verses 25 to 30. Those who humbly embrace Jesus in repentance and faith. And those who by grace respond to his invitation to come to him. Let's look at this first group in verses 20-24, the condemned. In these first four verses, Jesus ratchets up his intensity, doesn't he? He moves from describing the rejection of his contemporaries in verses 16-19 to to denouncing three of the most prominent towns on the north side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus' ministry had primarily been focused up to that point. So, of course, we know Capernaum by this point. It was Jesus' ministry base of operations. But but we're probably not as familiar familiar with Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin was less than an hour's walk from Capernaum. So it would have been a natural place for Jesus to extend his ministry to. Bethsaida was on the other side of the Jordan, so technically outside Galilee. But according to John's gospel, Bethsaida was the location where it was the original home of of three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So we understand why Jesus ministered in Bethsaida. And why did Jesus denounce these cities? Well, these three cities were the locations where Jesus worked the highest concentration of his miracles. Most of the miracles we read about and studied together in Matthew 8 and 9 were, in fact, done in Capernaum. But apparently, Chorazin and Bethsaida likewise had seen Jesus do many mighty works. 
And yet, tragically, even, even the people of these cities, even though they had seen Jesus like a front row seat, right? They had a front row seat to God's kingdom power being put on display in Jesus. But they didn't repent. They carried on with business as usual. They had missed the point entirely. You know, friends, Jesus' miracles weren't intended to be some sort of, you know, religious magic sideshow that, that the crowds just marvel at and then move along. No, he didn't, he didn't do his mighty works at the, so that the, the watching gallery, you know, might give a little bit of a golf clap, you know, of appreciation, but then carry on unmoved. No, his miracles were designed to reveal that God was in their midst. They signified that the kingdom of heaven had, had broken into their lives and into their existence, into their consciousness. You know what the people's response should have been? It should have been to drop to their knees like doubting Thomas when he saw the resurrected Jesus and cry out, my Lord and my God. Their response should have been like Isaiah of old and who in chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he do? He cried out, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is the only right response to a display of God's glory. That these people saw God's mighty power in Jesus with, with no thought of their position before God revealed just how hard their hearts really were. So in verses 21 to 24, Jesus pronounces a series of woes on these cities, much like we read of in the Old Testament, and the prophets who proclaim woes against nations that align themselves against God. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon were cities in Phoenicia along the Mediterranean coast, really not too far from Galilee. And both were wicked cities renowned for their idolatry. You can read in Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 26 to 28 and Zechariah 9 and other places how the Lord felt about the arrogance and wickedness of Tyre. The prophets pronounced judgment upon these cities. And yet Jesus said, if Tyre and Sidon had received the light of revelation that, that you, Chorazin, and Bethsaida had received, they would have turned to God long ago in an obvious display of repentance. Like, like Nineveh of old, who repented at the preaching of Jonah, Tyre and Sidon would have responded in sackcloth and ashes in a way far more appropriately than the cities in Jesus' hometown, home region. He continues in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus says that the reason that Capernaum was so hard-hearted is that they were so proud-hearted. We're not told why this was the case. Maybe it was due to Capernaum's material resources or the people's religious heritage as, as Jews, or maybe, maybe the fact that they thought themselves highly because they had a, a mighty prophet working in their midst. And that even as they exalt themselves as high as possible to heaven, Jesus says the people of Capernaum will be brought down as low as possible to Hades, to the realm of the dead. They will be judged for their arrogance. Jesus continues, for the, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, we know Sodom, right? Sodom is a, is a city 
virtually synonymous with sexual immorality and greed. God destroyed Sodom by raining fire and sulfur from heaven as revealed in, in Genesis 19. And yet, Jesus said, if he had done those same miracles in Sodom as he did in Capernaum, things like, things like healing the leper and the centurion's servant and the woman with the issue of blood and the, and the paralytic and, and, and raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, if he had done those things in Sodom of old, Sodom would still be around today rather than buried at the bottom of the Dead Sea because Sodom would have seen the miracles and they would have repented. Oh, friends, this indictment surely shocked Jesus' hearers. Wicked Gentiles and renowned sinners would have responded more appropriately than the cities in Israelite Galilee. Friends, I want us to notice three things about Jesus' statements here. First, I want us to see that Jesus speaks assuredly about a fixed day of coming judgment. It's explicit in the text in, in both verses 22 and 24. He speaks of the day of judgment. There is coming an appointed day when God will reckon with human evil. He will deal justly with humanity's rebellion against him. This, this doctrine of God's judgment is designed to comfort and sober God's people and to shock the senses of those without him. Warn those who don't worship God through Christ. Friends, friends, you need to build into your worldview as a major pillar of your worldview the reality of the coming day of judgment. And as you do, you need to know that you're swimming upstream against the prevailing worldview of almost everyone around you. People are either oblivious of this coming day or they have chosen to carve out for themselves an alternate reality in their rebellion against God that, that they're able to conveniently ignore that coming day. Friends, I don't know if there's a more countercultural idea than this idea of the coming day of judgment. You know, we're swimming in cultural waters where the current pulls us in the flow of this radical individualism. I can set my own rules. I, I create my own reality. I can do with my body whatever I want to do with my body. What's most important is that I follow my heart and express myself in the way that, that makes me the most fulfilled. Human freedom of expression is like, is like the end-all, be-all currency of our culture. And all of it assumes one big, gigantic truth. I am autonomous. I am accountable to no one but me. But friends, the Bible reveals that worldview to be utter foolishness. You are not the self-appointed captain of your own fate. You are a creature accountable to your creator. And because God has created all things, he defines your reality. He created mankind so that we might glorify him with our lives and live under his lordship and so satisfy our souls with him. We are accountable to him. And of course, this impulse for autonomy and self-sufficiency is the essence of our rebellion against God. Instead of being content to be princes and princesses, so to speak, under our king, we grasp for his throne. Because this cosmic treason has infected the heart of every human who's ever lived except for Jesus, we all deserve God's judgment. His goodness demands a reaction and even an accountability against such rebellion. 
Friends, our God would cease to be good if he ceased to be just. So my non-Christian friend, I believe your conscience tells you this is true. Deep down in your soul, I think you know that you are not the end-all, be-all definer of your reality. If you've pushed aside in your mind the reality of God and his prerogative to judge, it's because you've muted in your heart, you've suppressed a truth in your heart that God says is plainly revealed in the things that he has made. The glory of what he has made speaks, it proclaims his power and majesty of a creator with him, with whom you and I and all of us have to do. Friends, if you want to learn more about how this works, study Romans chapter 1 to 3. It would be a great place for you to start. But, oh, friend, please don't let the twinges of your conscience fall silent lest you recall them on the day of judgment with tremendous regret. So first truth, God has appointed a day of judgment. Second truth, Jesus is amazingly omniscient. How can he know what Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would have done if he did mighty works in their midst? Well, our text reveals that, that Jesus has a type of conditional knowledge about events that didn't even happen. Right? He knows how people would have reacted if they did happen. Friends, if Jesus' understanding is this thorough, don't you think he knows the ins and outs of your life? Don't you think he can see the nooks and crannies of your soul, the parts that you've tried to hide from him? No, Jesus is entirely just because Jesus is entirely knowledgeable. Third truth, Jesus is completely fair. Jesus' statements in verses 22 and 24 indicate that it will be more tolerable, quote, more tolerable for those wicked cities on Judgment Day than for the cities whose people rejected Christ. Friends, will the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom face judgment? Yes, indeed. Will they be Will Sodom already judge with a terrible temporal judgment, be, be judged eternally on the last day? 100%. But Jesus says a worse fate awaits those who have more light. All judgment is terrible, but for those who have more revelation, and indeed for those who have witnessed Christ's mighty works and remained unchanged, there is awaiting a more severe judgment on the last day. Friends, our God is entirely fair. And I would just call us to notice how much gospel light we have been given in our day. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the full record of Jesus' ministry and his death and resurrection in the four gospels. And then we have 23 other books of the New Testament that explain the significance of what his life and death and resurrection means for us and how they all fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures. We have dozens, dozens of, of wonderful English in Spanish, in whatever language you read, translations of the Bible. Countless solid resources, books and podcasts at our disposal. It is just an embarrassment of riches. Surely with such light, there comes a great responsibility to turn to God by trusting fully in Christ. Some of you have sat under the sound of the gospel scores of times, and yet your heart remains unmoved. 
Oh, friend, I beg you, don't imitate the folly of the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Don't think that the absence of judgment now equals the absence of God's judgment then. Don't mistake God's patience with you for laxity. You will stand before Him one day. So pray to God that He would move your heart toward Him. Pray that He would would open your eyes and stir your conscience And then lean fully on the one who willingly absorbed the judgment on that day that you deserve. He absorbed in his body the judgment of sinners who repent when he died on the cross. So that if you turn to him today, you won't stand exposed and alone on the great day of judgment. But you will be hidden in Christ Jesus. Number two, we not only see the condemned, we see the accepted in these last several verses. Verses 25 to 30, Jesus transitions from those who are condemned to those whom God accepts because of their connection to Jesus. But these verses really do help shed more light on verses 20 to 24. So so, so don't take, don't don't kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of quarantine off those first four verses in your mind. We're going to come back to them even as we move through this portion of the scripture. Look at verse 25. First of all, I want us to see in the subpoint there, we are accepted by God because the Father reveals the Son. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from little children, excuse me, from, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Friends, just a little bit of a sidebar here, okay? Not the main idea, not the main point. Little sidebar, look at how much we learn in these verses through a prayer. Jesus leads us in a prayer of praise to his Father. So, friends, for those of you who lead us in prayer on Sunday mornings, don't undersell in your mind and even in your preparation how, how, how prayer informs all of our understanding of who God is and what He has done, and what He is doing now, and what He will do in the coming days. Prayer is not the same as teaching. It's a different category, but God-honoring prayer edifies. And we as a congregation, friends, benefit, don't we, from prayers that are thoughtful and theologically helpful and worshipful. Sidebar over. Okay, notice who it is that Jesus directs His prayer to. Not just the sovereign ruler, not just the Lord of heaven and earth, He addresses this king as father. He has a special relationship to God so much that he calls him father. You know, when I prayed just a few moments ago, I did the same thing. I opened my prayer by praying to the father. But friends, I only had the right to do that because I prayed through Christ the son. And so I closed the prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, recognizing the central mediating role of Jesus Christ that gives us access to the father. But Jesus needed no such mediator. He has a direct line to God as the son of the father. Notice what Jesus praises his sovereign father for in verse 25. He praises the father for twin actions, for concealing and revealing. God has hidden these things, quote, from the the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. No, no, what are these things that, that he conceals and reveals? Well, well, think about the context. 
Jesus has just, in, just finished indicting Chorazin and Bethsaida and, and Capernaum for missing the significance of his mighty works and for failing to repent. So I think these things are the kingdom realities necessary to repent and trust in Christ. Jesus is talking about the salvation that he had come to bring. And so Jesus praises God that he hides those truths, for he hides the kingdom from the wise and understanding. And he reveals them to little children. The wise understanding are those who who think they have no need of God. They're self-sufficient in their own wisdom, in their own understanding. And of course, these little children are not little physical kids, right? The little children are those who, who are humble and understand their lack of resources and who eagerly embrace a Messiah who defies the wisdom of this age. Friends, I think there's a clue in verses 20 to 24 that when Jesus praises God for hiding the kingdom from the wise and understanding, I think he's talking about the cities in verse 2024 that he's just indicted, along with all those who are self-sufficient like them. What, what might that clue be? Look at verse 20 to 24. Just think about it. What might be the clue that the unrepentant cities are among the wise and understanding whom God hides the truth from? You see it? What does he say of Capernaum? Capernaum lifts itself up in pride to the heavens. They conceive of themselves as wise in understanding. And so by extension, I think we could say that all of those cities did the same. In verse 26, Jesus praises his Father that his concealing and revealing are his gracious will. The Father isn't reluctant to conceal or reveal. It's his good pleasure. The Father delights to both conceal salvation from those who are proud and to reveal it to those who come to him like little children. Now, friends, I know when we read a verse like this, there's a temptation, isn't there, to kind of soften its edges. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that God takes good pleasure in concealing himself from the proud. Or perhaps we, we question how God could be fair from, in concealing himself from some while revealing himself to others. But friends, we must remember God is not dealing with the morally neutral here, is he? There are none of those who live in our original ancestor, Adam, we are a race of rebels, and God owes us nothing but his wrath. God's concealing work is not unjust or unfair. It is the outflow of his judgment that is always right and good. And friends, if Jesus praises God for both judgment and mercy, so ought we. He is glorified in both. He is glorified in sovereignly concealing and in sovereignly revealing. And praise God, he has revealed his salvation to the humble. He flips the wisdom of the world on its head. It's the last who shall be first. It's those who live their lives for Jesus' sake that find it. It's the message of a crucified Messiah that saves. So friends, let's let this truth humble us. If you're a Christian this morning, it is not because you're among the intellectual elite that discovered the secret that millions have not. No, 
God accepts you because it was his good pleasure to reveal Christ to you. Secondly, we are accepted not only because the, the Father reveals the Son, but because the Son knows and reveals the Father. See this in verse 27. If you were uh, paying attention when we read the text earlier, you probably noticed that just as the Father reveals the things about the Son, so the Son, verse 27 says, reveals the Father to those whom He chooses. So the Father reveals the Son in order for us to be saved, and the Son reveals the Father in order for us to be saved. How's that for a theological pretzel? I think the opening statement in verse 27 is the the hinge statement that makes this work, that makes sense of this. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things, all things that pertain to to God's plan of salvation of, of sinners and the knowledge of God and the authority to carry this plan out, all of it has been delegated to the Son by the Father. Jesus says that He, the Son, is the Father's exclusive agent of salvation and of revelation. How does God the Father reveal all things pertaining to salvation to little children? He does so through Jesus the Son, to whom He has given all things. Now, friends, we're starting to doggy paddle on the deep end of the theological pool, aren't we? That one phrase at the beginning of verse 27 is enough to either charge Jesus with blasphemy or to cause us to fall on our knees and worship Him as God. Because if the Father handed to one of His creatures all things, it would be putting a created being in the seat of exercising God's authority. For the Father to remain God, He must delegate all things to one who is His equal. And because the Father has delegated all things to Jesus Christ, the Son, then we must conclude that the Son is fully God. Jesus explains further, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, the Father and the Son have a mutually exclusive, comprehensive, and intimate knowledge. Say that again. The Father and the Son have a mutually exclusive, comprehensive, and intimate knowledge of each other. Friend, no one has to reveal the Son to the Father because the Father knows the Son comprehensively and intimately. And and no one has to reveal the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father because likewise, I can't remember which one I said first, but it's the same for both. They know each other exclusively and comprehensively and intimately. They have a mutual knowledge of each other that no one else has. Friends, there's no other explanation here than that Jesus understands himself to be God. A finite human cannot understand the infinite like he claims to do here. A finite human cannot be the exclusive agent of God's self-revelation like he claims to have and be here. Only God can do that. Friends, Jesus is not just God's son in his incarnation, even though that's true. He's not merely the Son of God as Israel's Messiah King. No, Jesus is saying that He has a sonship that penetrates into eternity past. He's not just God's Son by virtue of His incarnation. Jesus is God's Son by virtue of His nature. In fact, the very reason that Jesus is the Messiah's Son 
is that He is first the eternal Son. He is, as we so often confess in the creed, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is our Lord Jesus. So how can the Father reveal Himself through the Son and the Son reveal the Father to those whom He chooses? It is because the Son is one with the Father. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, the the eternal yet incarnate Son. So friends, if any of us come to know and worship the Father, we do so because Jesus the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to us. That's how we come to repent. That's how we come to believe. It's all of grace. It's all of God. And friends, if you want to delve more deeply into other passages in which Jesus kind of fleshes out this relationship to the Father, you'll find them mostly in the Gospel of John, okay? John's Gospel. So for instance, you might study John 5, 19 to 29, or John 6, 37 to 40, and Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. They are rich and wonderful portions of the Scripture. Beloved, this is what we celebrate this Christmas season. We celebrate the wonder of God, the eternal Son, become man. The one who shares the very nature of the Father condescended to take on our human nature, yet without sin, so that He might bring us to the Father. And this is why, friends, we must heed Christ's invitation in verses 28 to 30. The third point of our acceptance, we are accepted Because the Son invites us to come to Him. Praise God. We are accepted because the Son invites us to come to Him. If Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, if He is the key that unlocks the door of salvation, then friends, why in the world wouldn't we come to Him? Here we see the the beautiful tension of divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. Yes, it's Jesus who chooses who to reveal to the Father, but He extends an invitation that we are all responsible to heed. We are to come to Jesus like little children who recognize our great need, not like the wise and the understanding who think they need nothing. Friends, we see in this invitation by Christ what the great theologian Jonathan Edwards called an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. How's that for a mouthful? Edwards said, we see in Christ an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. We might say today some sort of like, something like this, like an intersection of diverse praiseworthy qualities or something like that. So for instance, we've learned in this passage that Jesus has unlimited authority because he is God. And yet, how does he use that authority? He uses it to invite weary sinners burdened by their sin and toil to come to him for rest because he, this great authoritative one, is gentle and lowly in heart. Friends, in Jesus, we see both infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite majesty and infinite meekness things that together are typically incompatible in any other person are sweetly united together in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the eternal Son of God has a heart that yearns for sinners to come to him. Who does he invite to himself? All who are weary. All who are heavy burdened by the labor that they're undergoing. Later in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus says of the scribes and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to to lift a finger to move them for them. The religious leaders of Jesus' day applied God's law to, to, to the people so unreasonably that it was as if they tied a massive boulder on people's shoulders and that brought them to their knees. They staggered under the burden of trying to please God without the power to please God. Friends, we know what that's like. Maybe some of you are trying to do that today. You're trying to please God through your self-righteousness through your good deeds, by your philanthropy, by your achievements in this life. Friends, where has that self-effort gotten you? Has it given rest to your soul? Or has it only brought more unrest, more striving after the wind? Friend, I'm guessing it's only further weighed you down as you grasp for a rest you can't possibly hope to obtain through those things. Jesus says, there's a better alternative. Come to me, and there you'll find rest. And Jesus, the Son, we will find the rest that God intended for us from the beginning of time. In six days, God created the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. God completed his work, and he invited humanity into the joy and peace and satisfaction that he created us to enjoy in relationship with him. But tragically, we forfeited that rest in the fall. Adam pursued rest in another source than God. And consequently, all of humanity was barred from God's rest. And throughout the story of redemption, God gave us glimpses and pictures of this rest. So in the Mosaic law, he prescribed a a Sabbath day of rest, a day of rest from work. In the conquest of Canaan, God gave his people the promised land that he, had, that he had promised to Abraham. He gave them rest from their enemies through Joshua. But then, like in Eden, God's people forfeited their rest, didn't they, eventually? They forfeited their rest in the land by their idolatry, and they were exiled from the land once again. And so now Jesus arrives on the scene, and what does he say? He doesn't say, go back to Eden. He doesn't say, live here in the land of Canaan because this is the place that you'll find rest, this this physical location. He didn't say, honor such and such a day because on that day is where you'll find rest. No, he said, come to me. Come to me. I'm the source of the rest that God intends for you. I'm the one who will take you into God's Sabbath rest both now and forever. Come to me, bring your burden to me, bring your sin to me, bring your weariness and your self-effort and your shame to me. I will give you rest for your souls. Beloved, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, 
if Jesus really is the eternal son of God, then, then surely I need to, to fix myself up a little bit before I come to him. Oh, friends, nothing could be further for the truth. You don't need to unburden yourself first in order to receive God's rest. Your soul weariness and your heavy burden are the very things that qualify you to receive rest from Jesus. Your sin and your brokenness and your failures, the things about which you are most ashamed that you would never want anyone to know about, those things are the necessary credentials to receive rest from Jesus. You simply come knowing that you cannot achieve rest on your own. You need Jesus to give it to you. So you turn from your sin, you lay your burden down, and you come to him. Notice in verse 29, it's not as though we come to Jesus and trade in our heavy burden for a life free from all responsibilities and demands. Now, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Of course, a yoke is the heavy crossbar that harnessed oxen to force them to plow a field. It signified that the animals under the yoke were under the authority of their master. So Jesus clearly intends for those who come to him to, to give themselves to his rule over their lives. He calls those who come to him to, to learn from him in a life of discipleship. We Christians are lifelong learners, aren't we, of King Jesus. But notice it's not as though we trade in our bondage to sin and self-righteousness for an equally oppressive Jesus yoke. Look at what Jesus says in verse 30. For, here's a reason why you should come and do this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy there is a, is a Greek word translated elsewhere in our New Testament, kind. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Jesus isn't saying that when you come to him, your life will be easy, but rather that his yoke is a yoke of kindness. Jesus' authority over those who come to him is profoundly kind. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's like this burden of Jesus is really a non-burden. It's an oxymoron. It's a light burden. Instead of weighing us down and making us slog along, the yoke and burden of Jesus are life-giving. They give us rest. When we come to Jesus, we discover that we can stop running on the hamster wheel of Christian performance and achievement and rest in Him. Even we Christians do this, don't we? Those who have come to Jesus by faith, we confess that, yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's His work alone that saves us. But then every day, we act as though God's ongoing love depends on what we do. And so on our good days, when we have our quiet time and treat our families with kindness and resist temptation, well, we feel pretty good about ourselves. God must really love me today. But on the days that we fail miserably, on the days that we don't have our quiet time, we, we treat our fam families really poorly and we succumb to temptation, well, we sink into despair. God must really not love me today. God must surely hold me at arm's length today. And the former pastor here, John Filkey, calls, as I understand it, he calls this tendency the performance pony, right? 
We're riding the merry-go-round of self-righteousness up and down and up and down. It's an apt illustration. But friend, don't you see? When we come to Jesus, we take his yoke, not so that he'll love us. We take his yoke because he loves us. We come to him and we rest in his flawless performance as the perfect man, a righteousness he then credits to us by faith in him. We come to him and we rest in his death in our place to satisfy the demands of God's justice, a sacrifice that we know that God accepted because he loosed Jesus from death's grip on the third day and he installed him as king of the universe. So we not only rest in Jesus' life and in his death, but we rest in his resurrection, knowing that we will share in his endless life of eternal rest forever in the new Eden, in the promised land the new Canaan. And then we work, don't we? And we toil and we labor in the harvest fields and we fight sin with all that we've got, but we do so with the wind of forgiveness and love in our sails, knowing that Jesus gave his spirit to us to give us the strength and the ability to please God, not because of our work, but because of his. Oh, beloved, Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. But notice what is at the bottom of such kindness. What is the foundational truth that makes all of this possible? How can we be so confident that when we come to Christ with our burden, he's not going to strike us down with the rod of his judgment like we see in verses 20 to 24? Look at verse 29 again. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Charles Spurgeon helpfully noted for us that in all the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in 89 chapters of biblical text about the person and work of Jesus, there's only one place that Jesus tells us about his heart. And what does he say? I'm gentle and lowly. Surely the one to whom God has given all authority would say something like, I'm exalted and I'm majestic in heart. Well, that's true, but that's not what Jesus says. Perhaps the one who will judge the world on the last day will say something like, I am am just and I am righteous in heart. Well, that's also true, but that's not what Jesus says. The one time Jesus chooses to tell us about his heart, he says, come to me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Friends, Jesus' gentleness means that he isn't harsh, right? He's not reactive. He's meek. He's not rigid. He's kind. As Dane Ortland put it in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that we give out to guests, so go get your copy. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger but open arms. Jesus says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Jesus instructs us to come to him with the humility of a little child. And friends, when we approach Jesus with this type of of lowliness, with, with this type of humility of a little child, guess who meets us in that low place? For all his brilliant glory and transcendent holiness and unswerving justice, you'll recognize Jesus by his lowliness. You'll not find anyone more approachable than he. 
Listen to Ortland again. He writes, human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that the one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the, to the despicable and the unclean. And he says this, the risen, this risen Christ, after all, is the one whom God has highly exalted and whose name every knee will bow one day in submission. This is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose voice is like the roar of many waters and who has a, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, this is the one so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot be adequately captured with words, so ineffably magnificent that all language dies before such splendor. And yet, what does this exalted one say about his heart? I am gentle and lowly. Friends, when you come to Jesus, you're not going to find him eager to condemn you. You're going to find him eager to help you. When you come to Jesus, he's not going to pinch his nose at your spiritual B.O., He's not going to roll his eyes about the moral baggage that you're carrying into the relationship. He's not going to outsource your burdens to someone with more time to help you than he has. No, he's going to gladly take your burden. In exchange, you know what he's going to give you? He's going to eagerly and joyfully and generously and gently and humbly give you rest. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't know who needs to hear this message today. I don't know every need that's on, a, on our minds and our hearts today. I don't know all the burdens that people have carried into this room today what's on their minds, what's preoccupying them, what's burdening them. But, oh, Father, I pray that if there are those here today that have never come to Jesus for rest. Oh, Father, help them to stop their striving. Help them to stop their striving after the wind. Help them to lay down their, their sin and their self-righteousness and their heavy burden and their toil. And come to you for a rest that only you can give. The eternal rest that you have prepared for those who are your people. And then for those, who are, who, those of us who are Christians today. Oh Father, this, this message is, is still apt for us. That we, even though you freed us from the, the yoke of bondage to the law, you freed us from the, the, the chains of, of our captivity to sin, we still sometimes try to reattach that yoke. We try to reattach those chains and our own self-righteous tendencies, desire to live as our own king. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to learn from you. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And even as now we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, Father, I pray that we would come. We would come and enjoy the new covenant meal that you have set before us, reminding us of Jesus' death and resurrection that even reminds us 
that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.